when were the what schools where's that story it's curious city where wbez answers your questions about chicago the region and its people it's a saturday night about 10 30 it's warm early august and a black man from chicago is driving with two friends they head east over the missouri river towards st louis when they hit heavy traffic the man's name is Fred Gorey, and he's driving his new sport model Buick when he gets pulled over. The officer walks towards them. He's white. He searches the man, the Buick, and finds nothing. Gorey asks, what's the reason? The officer says, speeding. Speeding? That's impossible with the traffic. The officer says, he'll lock them up. Gorey protests. A struggle ensues. They tumble into a ditch. Two shots are fired into Gory's stomach. He dies shortly after. They are a dozen miles from Ferguson, Missouri. He was murdered by the police in 1925, and that's the story that we grew up hearing. Fred Gory was Rosalind Henderson Mustafa and Kathy Anderson's grandfather. They never met him, but they'd heard stories from their mother. And she did tell us that he was stopped because he had a, a new car. A new Buick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she told them the whole reason why he was in St. Louis that night, 300 miles away from his home in Chicago, was for a baseball game. The sisters asked Curious City for details. Well, I wanted to know about the Chicago Independent Giants, the team that our grandfather managed. Uh, why would he risk traveling 300 miles to a game? And when you look at the route, it was quite dangerous for the times. The route would take Fred Gorey, a black man, through southern Illinois and dozens of nearly all-white towns, some of which at the time had Ku Klux Klan ice cream socials and signs to warn black folks against passing through. Why risk the drive? For baseball, of all things. I'm Logan Jaffe, Curious City multimedia producer. It's hard to know exactly why Fred Gorey risked the trip. But if baseball played a part, it's best to start with what baseball meant to the black community in the 1920s. And even if you're familiar with Negro League baseball stars like Candy Jim Taylor, Satchel Paige, even Jackie Robinson, who integrated baseball, you should know the All-Stars owe a lot to people you've never heard of, like our questioner's grandfather, Fred Gorey. The sisters know their grandfather managed a team called the Chicago Independents, or the Independent Giants, depending on the newspaper. You'd think the team name would be a good lead, right? Through 19, about 16, Chicago had three fairly prominent black teams. The Leland Giants, the plain old Chicago Giants, and the Chicago American Giants. That's Leslie Heafy, a Negro Leagues researcher and professor at Kent State University. She says the three popular black baseball teams in Chicago were all named something giants, but none managed by a Fred Gorey. And in addition to that, you had a whole variety of probably six or seven in Chicago local black teams. Plus then you had eight, ten, maybe twelve white semi-pro teams. In 1920s Chicago, semi-professional and amateur baseball was the thing to do on a weekend afternoon. Crowds would show up and pay for any game. Here's a typical Saturday schedule from July 26, 1925. 
the Chicago Blues versus the Chicago Giants, the Rogers Parks at Logan Squares Park, all Chicago's at Surmax Park, the Bell Plains, the Ciceros, the Grizzards. These are black teams and white teams, segregated, though playing each other all the time, just on weekends for a bit of cash. But here's what white baseball had in the 1920s that black baseball did not. The major leagues. Teams like the Cubs and the White Sox were in a national institution in which players, managers, and owners made careers for themselves. There was no black equivalent. Even players on big-name black teams, like all those giants, good enough to be part of the major leagues were not welcome. Black teams were mostly independent. They are not affiliated with any organization, and so they operate however they want. Nobody's keeping standings. There's no championship going to be declared. There's no awards for anybody necessarily. And no money for players to make a living wage. In comes Rube Foster. He owned the Chicago American Giants, and he had a vision of an organized black national league. It was a business idea. He thought black baseball players should make careers. But... Foster wasn't just in it for the money. He's thinking about what white fans have, which is they can root for the players on the Cubs. And so it gives them role models. It gives them something to look up to that's more than just the kid in the neighborhood. So in 1920, Foster convinces a bunch of Midwestern black baseball team owners to meet in a Kansas City YMCA. They talk, they sign papers, they form what they call the National Negro League. In Chicago, games are packed. But Heafy says even the most successful Negro League teams played just a hundred or so official games a year. They needed more income, so these black pro teams would play anyone they could. So those other games that they're playing are against white semi-professional teams, white amateur teams, black semi-pro teams, black independent teams, black amateur teams. Teams like those run by Fred Gorey, our questioner's grandfather. Heafy says this might be where he fits into all of this. So organized black baseball, the Negro Leagues, does not survive without the addition of all of these other opponents that they play. But those independent teams still scheduled their own games, sometimes outside their hometown. In Fred Gorey's case, his team had been invited to play at a church picnic just west of St. Louis. And I put the sister's question to Heafy. Why risk the drive for baseball? Quite frankly, they're going to tell you they love the game that much. And it's worth it if that's what you have to do to play. Really? just seems to be like really high stakes here. Well, we're also talking about a time period when the black community was very much behind the idea of stepping up and doing for themselves and no longer sitting back and waiting for the white community to let them do things. So we're going to form our own leagues, we're going to take care of ourselves, we're going to be proud of who we are and what we do, and we're not going to sit back and wait. And yes, there are risks involved, but this is the only way things are going to improve. I wanted to run that second explanation by our questioners to see if it sounded like what they'd heard about their grandfather. So I invite Kathy, Roz, and a researcher named Jeremy Kroc into the studio. Crock's been sharing information about Fred Gorey with the sisters for years. The sisters say that description of ballplayers as entrepreneurial and driven makes sense, especially when you consider where Fred Gorey grew up in Grambling, Louisiana. All of Grambling was black. And so they grew up with confidence 
and didn't know about all of the prejudice and and segregation and all of that until they came mm-hmm. up here. So if Fred Gorey came out of that mindset, mm-hmm. why couldn't he do anything he wanted to do? Mm-hmm. He had a good job in Chicago, his own house, a wife, three kids, and that nice car. But in this instance, his success brought his demise in, in St. Louis because he, here he was driving, right. a successful businessman driving a new sporty Buick, and that's why, that's why he got stopped. That's Jeremy Kroc, the researcher. He and I found a newspaper article about Fred Gorey's death published in a black weekly newspaper. It offers eyewitness accounts of what happened that night in 1925. The sisters had never seen it. Do you mind if I read some of it aloud? That's, that's all right. Okay. Um, Gorey was shot returning to Effingham, Illinois, to get several of his ballplayers who were held there when their car broke down on the way from Chicago. Gorey's thoughts... While he was being arrested, Gorey asked for the chance to make some sort of other arrangements for his stranded ballplayers. It was at this point that the deputy constable became infuriated. He shoved Gorey with his left hand, calling him an N-word, and went for his gun with his right hand, apparently, to shoot. They start to struggle. As he the gun, Gorey, Gorey and the deputy roll down a five-foot bank. The deputy calls for help because there are two other men with him. A, quote, unidentified youth holds a gun on Gorey's friends in the car while the other man beats Gorey over the head with a blackjack. Three minutes pass. Gorey is on the ground, nearly unconscious. The deputy says, quote, I can handle him now. I'm going to shoot him. On Monday morning, a jury considered the facts. After just three minutes, they decided the deputy was not accountable. I just It shows you that things haven't changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it shows you. He was murdered for driving while black in 1925. Right. This article is good because there were so many articles written in, in white newspapers talking about how the constable was found not guilty. It was, you know, the guy in the car who was the one responsible. And so um, it's some vindication here. Yes, yes. (laughs) And it confirms the story that our mother told us that helps. Gorey's baseball game was canceled, but black baseball went on. Just the next year, in 1926, the Chicago American Giants won the Colored World Series. And decades later, by 1947, a former Negro Leagues player integrates the major leagues. And here comes Robinson, trying to steal home. He's safe, says the ump. Fred Gorey never got to see that. But Roz, one of her questioners, says she's proud her grandfather and his friends traveled and played baseball on their own terms. Every group in this country has been faced with barriers at some point. And African Americans and black people have been faced with inordinate barriers. But in spite of that, to see that a group of people had created something to replace what they were forbidden to do. Mm-hmm. It just inspires me. Roz and Kathy say the family spiraled after Fred Gorey's death. And though they've recovered through generations, Roz says they're still paying a price. We have seen over the years the impact his death has had on our entire family. Every single one of his siblings lost their brother. His parents lost their oldest son. We're looking at it now as a broader picture of a key family member killed under profoundly tragic situations with no fair outcome, no 
punishment for the person who actually did it. And we're living with that in our DNA. Reporting for this story came from me, Logan Jaffe. Support for Curious City comes from the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism. Curious City is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island has been following their curiosity and have been committed to brewing beers for Chicago that are celebrated worldwide by beer critics and beer lovers alike. More at gooseisland.com. We don't need to be the only beer you drink. We just want to be the best you drink. Next time on Curious City, almost every county in Illinois has a county fair, but not Cook County. Don't residents want to learn about suburban gardening? Urban agriculture? Maybe show off their cookie recipes. One commissioner loves the idea, but would Cook County pay for it? (laughs) Okay, let me gather myself here. I think it would be a non-starter. Why Cook County has no fair. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City. Before we start the show, we here at Curious City want to let you in on a little-known fact about WBEZ. 89% of all our funding comes from community support, including contributions from curious listeners like you. If this program has changed how you see Chicago, please consider supporting this program at wbez.org curious. Thank you. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.